Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs Podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. I am Cody, the not-so-out-of-work prep cook, now pizza cook. I pizza cook, too, now. Uh, <laughs> history fan, ranty host. Man, I had thought of something, and I forgot what I was going to tell you. <laughs> Joining me, as always, is <laughs> Moth Jula. How you doing, Moth? Hi. I was going to, I had, oh well, it's gone forever. Well, maybe next episode. Nope. 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 It's gone forever. It's gone forever. <laughs> um, We have a really good episode today. I feel like uh, we're like 15 episodes, 16 episodes in-ish. Uh-huh. And I feel like this is the first episode where I'm like, here's Mormons and drugs. <laughs> um, because everything has so far been like s- speculation on my part. And, like, yeah. You know correlation with like magic and Mm -hmm. this is the first episode where there is hard evidence shall we say or like real solid testimony testimonial evidence for mormons doing drugs and doing it a lot doing it regularly and with a whole congregation of people (laughs) so at this point uh, since we're so far in i feel it's weird to keep uh recapping at the beginning of each episode so if you feel you need some context, or you're a little lost immediately a few up, uh, minutes in, just go back and listen to uh, things chronologically. But for everyone else, uh, let us begin. So in late August of 1830, just months after founding the Church of Christ, but quickly became commonly known as Mormonism. Are you getting mad at me now? Because there was a tiny click from my phone? <laughs> I'm more worried about a fucking house. Like we've never house. have. No one's ever. I've never hear it. I never hear. It. If anyone uh, can't hear that, uh, it's very loud, and our house creaks like, uh, like it's gonna fall, or or like haunted. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. It's, 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 yeah. It's more of like a haunted creak. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a creepy old uh, house. So I'm I'm glad you guys can't hear it. It's going on literally through the entire recording. Um, So in late August of 1830, just months after founding the Church of Christ, what quickly became commonly known as Mormonism, um, Joe Smith borrowed money immediately from his parishioners. I I should say he just took money from his parishioners uh, and paid off uh, the lease he took out for property that he and Emma shared on his father-in-law Isaac Hill's land at that time. So when they founded the church, he was in debt to his father-in-law. Yeah. He just kind of took a bunch of the church funds that flooded in immediately and paid off his father-in-law and fucked off out of town. Oh. Um, So he paid him back and then just left. Yeah. But he was using church funds. So like I said uh, in the last couple episodes, like from this moment forward, Joe is a professional prophet. (laughs) Everything he does is paid with church funds. So just keep that in mind. Newell Knight, uh, the exorcist, the guy who uh, was possessed. Maybe, I'm sorry, he probably was waiting for that for so long. Just like, here, all these people follow me, and here's <laughs> all the money yeah. you wanted you back. Were, you and your whole family were talking shit the whole time <laughs> about my gold Bible that I saw in a hat. <laughs> but here's you wrong. Yep. Yeah. It, no, there I'm had to be leave. <laughs> no small amount of smugness on uh, Joe's part, I imagine, uh, uh, given his personality. Yes. 
Anyway, uh, Newell Knight, the guy who was possessed and exercised in our last episode. Oh, yeah, the kid. Uh, yeah, the, the young kid, uh, the visionary acolyte of Smith. Uh, he m- moves the couple to the Whitmers once more, the place where they did all the translating originally. And uh, Emma, officially at this point, never sees her family again. So this is where things get real culty real quick. <laughs> like, real quick. Real quick. She never sees her family again. It's like not even a year. Oh, it's months after starting the church. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's at this point that, uh, like I said, Joe officially becomes a professional pro- prophet. He will continue to live solely off of money milked out of his congregational members for the remainder of his life, uh, which isn't very long, thankfully. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> On September 4th, uh, just... Just a couple weeks after this, a small group of the church decided to take a sacrament together. And finding themselves depleted of sacramental wine, Smith leaves to procure some and finds himself simultaneously depleted of hard currency, meaning cash, and, um, you know, a really long walk into town. So, miraculously, he receives a timely and convenient revelation that will play a large part in the story to come. And this is this is Joe and his prophet uh revelation god voice cool so uh bear with me quote listen to the voice of jesus christ your lord your god and your redeemer it and remember he receives this revelation on the road (laughs) not with head and hat just like i kind of imagine him like gazing off into the distance just like in prophet voice just shouting into the distance all right so Um, like those guys that you see on the But he apparently came back and recited this to everybody. I don't know if he used his head and hat in front of everybody, but whatever. Well, I think, like you said before, he did and then stopped after that, uh, stopped heavily after that trial. Yeah, well, he didn't do it publicly more than, like, in front of more than a few people. Right. Really close, like, tight-knit hierarchical. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's got to maintain his audience. Got to keep it controlled in some degree, of course. So, yeah, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your God and Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. For behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament, if it be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory. Wherever a commandment I give unto you, that you shall not purchase wine, neither strong drink of your enemies. Wherefore you shall partake of none, except it be made new among you. In this my father's kingdom, which shall be built up upon the earth, behold, this is wisdom in me, wherefore marvel not, for the hour cometh that I will drink out of the fruit of the vine with you on earth, and with all of those whom the father hath given out of the world. Wherefore lift up your hearts and rejoice, and gird up your loins and be faithful until I come, even so, amen. So uh, Jesus is going to come and drink wine with us all. What was he talking um, about? Not getting it from anyone else? Oh, okay. So you can't get wine. You can't, it's no longer cool to use sacramental wine mm. that you've purchased from someone else. You have to make it yourself. Oh. So there's some key points I'm gonna I'm gonna point out. I, okay. In this revelation, first off, you cannot buy sacramental wine. You have to make it, which fits into the entheogenic theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, sacramental wine is not visionary unless it is made by Smith. Or one of his close associates. Okay. Um, secondly, 
neither strong drink of your enemies. So again, booze are not cool to buy, but again, you can make them yourself. And this fits in with the word of wisdom, which comes later. And again, <laughs> this is so cool and sanctioned that Jesus himself, God, or whoever's talking through Joe, is going to come a second time and drink wine with everybody who's cool at the end of days. And uh, thirdly, that it doesn't matter what you take as the sacrament, so long as you do it with intention, going back to the psychedelics, uh, the science of psychedelics episode, that's an important variable, having the proper intention is what makes sacrament a sacrament. You could literally, I've, I've actually gone on uh, Boy Scout things where they, they like did the sacrament with like biscuits and st- or like crackers just to like, ooh, it doesn't have to be bread, it can be anything. Um <laughs> So again, you could literally, within Mormon theology, from its very beginning, you can take drugs so long as you do it with an eye single to the glory of God. And this is one of the first revelations Joe gives as a prophet of his new church. So this is huh. this will be a, a thing later, and this is why Mormons today actually only eat uh, bread and water. They're like most... Christian denominations drink wine Mm -hmm. or just little bits of wine for Mm -hmm. sacrament. Mormons do it with water. And it's because of this revelation that they're like, see, we can do it with water. We don't need anything. Totally glazing over the fact that you could do this with drugs and still be taking the sacrament. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is a very important moment in my work and Mormon history that we need to reexamine very carefully. Okay. Uh, this is known by Mormons today as DNC 27. So this revelation laid the groundwork for Smith's quick evolution into entheomagus. Uh, by allowing the sacrament to be whatever he damned well pleased, so long as it was consecrated before the Mormon god, Joe made his first real wiggle room for regular entheogenic administration in larger groups. If any skeptical congregational members were put off by the strange tasting or smelling sacramental wine, Joe similarly left himself substantial room for explanation. Uh, you know, I made it. It's a, it's a weird batch. It's a little sulfury. Or like he could say whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. Hardly a mere coincidence, the most outwardly visionary and ecstatic period of the Mormon religion will begin within six short months. So just... We have some skeptical, or like, we have some moments in the first few months of the church that I speculate Mm -hmm. had entheogenic administration. Yeah. After this revelation, within six months, we have like full-blown, like whole congregations of people seeing the same thing, doing the same thing at the same time, which leaves little room for explanation other than... They were getting drugged. Yeah. Okay. So this is why you referenced to the uh, the whole. What is it? The Lord's Supper. No, no, that big um, research thing they did in that church. Oh yes, the the miracle at Marsh Chapel. Yeah, that's this the is Good Friday. We're experiment. at the point now. Yeah, the Good Friday experiment. Thank you. That's what. So we're at that point now. Why you reference to that? Yeah, because essentially they're replicating the Good Friday experiment in mass with yeah. just a ton of Mormons, and right. they had the same results. Coincidentally, 
as an additional side note, uh, this revelation was originally dealing with the mediums used for sacraments. However, major additions and edits were made by Smith himself regarding hierarchy and church authority some years later. So this this revelation was expanded um, as the years went on, but originally it was just about the sacrament. Um, so as people read it today, there's a lot of stuff already there. Or there's a lot of stuff added in there, but this was originally just about the sacrament. You know, it's it's like Joe's. He has this regular habit of being like, uh, "Oh, go, God already said a lot of this a few years back, but what he meant to say was, <laughs> um, or what he he for I forgot to mention this because it's like there's so much God's telling me, <laughs> so I I just left this out. I I just must not have been revealing good enough. I'm sorry. I'm getting better as a prophet. Yeah. You know. Yeah. A fall conference of the church is held in September that same month of 1830, wherein Smith reveals the revelation we gave at the tail end of last week's episode, uh, where he like reprimands Cowdery and Page and the whole like other stones and these are devil stones and my seer stones are cool and yours are bad (laughs) and you guys go get married to some Lamanites and maybe convert an army for me. (laughs) (laughs) Smith asserts his like total dictatorship by dressing down Cowdery and self-appointing himself as the sole voice and prophet of God during this conference. So up until this point, it had been like a, and he'd been telling everybody this. He was like, yeah, I'm just going to be a quiet country prophet. And like, yeah. Nah, 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 and I've done revealing. And right. now but it's then money started run coming this in. church. And then money started coming in and yeah. uh, people started like questioning his, his doctrine, which, I mean, he was too much of a narcissist to, like, let that happen. Mm-hmm. So he immediately had to assert control and kind of reprimand the two big uh, guys that were threats to him, Hiram and Cowdery, right. and who he sent off for missionary work. Hiram Page and his revelations were labeled as deceptions of Satan, and Smith led his conference to confirm those actions. So he, like, asked for the whole conference to like kind of democratically be like, do you think I'm right? And they're like, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, poor Hiram. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so Hiram was allegedly instructed to grind his stone to dust and burn his private revelations. So we have no idea. We think they were about um, where Zion was going to be founded because clearly Joe wasn't going to stay in New York very long <laughs> because of his earlier career and he was already being persecuted, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah. A lot of the concern over, like, we're in the end of days. Like, Jesus is going to come any minute. Like, where is he going to come? And apparently a lot of Hiram Page's revelations were about that. Um, And Joe couldn't let – like, he didn't want somebody like that making those decisions. (laughs) So he, again, had to assert control. Um, And although the Church of Christ was – the Church of Christ or Mormonism was originally structured more democratically with power being largely shared – like I said, Smith just couldn't let anyone take control. <laughs> and so within just six months of its founding, uh, assert total dominion over the kingdom of yeah, God. And yeah. this, is a, this is a theocracy. Yes. This is a uh, fascist theocracy, <laughs> so, so to speak. Um, I'm shocked. Yeah. And it'll only get... Oh, oh. It only, he eventually gets his army. That's the scary thing. Oh. Uh, of Native Americans? Not of Native okay. Americans. <laughs> I was going to say. Uh... <laughs> they, never, they never buy into that. <laughs> okay. um, but he does get his army. Um, oh, God. We'll get into it. <laughs> a prairie woman? Uh, 
he he within within months of being tried for literal treason against the United States is is granted generalship of a uh, Illinois militia oh that has like several thousand people in it. Okay, um, I, you're, you're actually serious. <laughs> I'm serious. He gets oh an army. Gosh. Like okay. Uh, we'll get into it. I'm so glad I don't live in those times. Everyone just sounds so. I'm, I'm glad I don't live in those times either. Um, <laughs> although, although, you know, yeah, everyone's pretty dumb today too. <laughs> yep. Um. Yep. Stupid stuff we're fighting over. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing crazy going on now. No, nope. got everything figured no, out. Everyone's doing really well. All right, keep going. On to other news. <laughs> As mentioned last week, uh, this same revelation um, that dressed down Cowdery and Hiram called for several prominent or troublesome members of the church to go on a mission to proselytize to the Native American tribes westward along the Missouri and Ohio borders. Uh, They were additionally instructed privately to take wives among the so-called Lamanites, like I mentioned, solidifying a marital alliance with a large population and proving Joe's theological racism regarding the cursed people becoming white and delight someone more. Once more. That was literally part of the, like, go take wives and make them, make your kids white. And, you know, the Lamanites will become Nephites again. We'd covered that in the racism yeah. thing. Yeah, I no, I know. Uh, and leaving in October, just a month after this, the group quickly failed in their mission to the tribes along the Missouri. Uh, because, you know, they were like, hey, this is dumb. Uh, thanks for the stuff, but you guys are crazy. <laughs> um, how, uh, one member of the party that went uh, to the Missouri, Harley Pratt, was a former congregational member of a of a Campbellite church ran by a young visionary preacher named Sidney Rigdon. Oh, who yeah. we mentioned a few times. Yeah. Uh, and th- this group, uh, according to them decided to detour to Ohio to meet with his old acquaintance. Uh, And in late October, a small group of Mormon missionaries met with Rigdon, who was immediately converted and baptized. And Rigdon brings in some 100 members of his already established congregation and begins setting up a Mormon branch in Kirtland, Ohio. Why was it so easy to bring him in? This is where... (laughs) So there's a bunch of theories. Um, A lot of people... There's a lot of... There's a whole theory called the Spalding Theory that says that, like... Um, Sidney Rigdon worked in this printing office with, uh, where he had access to this book written by this guy who was essentially writing a fictional tale that is the Book of Mormon. And he secretly was meeting with Smith and they concocted the Book of Mormon together. Um, and years later, this guy or like people who knew this guy writing this book came out like, Hey, that book never got published, but like, I know him and I read that book and the Book of Mormon is the exact same. And so people started uh, creating this um, narrative about like uh, Rigdon being around Smith and like creating the Book of Mormon. That theory has kind of been uh, disproven, but the connection with Rigdon and Smith before this date, mm-hmm. I think, is still valid. So like all of the people, all of the neighbors in Palmyra that were like, hey, I I saw Rigdon hanging out with Joseph Smith like mm-hmm. years before any of this. So like they knew each other. This wasn't like a coincidence. I don't think the the spal- the dis- disproving the Spalding theory negates those eyewitness testimonies. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> I still think like all of these guys obviously knew each other. Mm-hmm. And I think they were all kind of working. The reason why this this 
church started so quickly is because I think it was really well planned. Mm -hmm. And all these guys kind of knew each other and like, hey, I know a guy. And, uh, you know, if we're going that way, we can just do this. And I mean, you know him. You used to work with him. But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a small community of like like minded occultist Christians. Mm -hmm. Okay, so regardless of whether or not uh, they knew each other, Rigdon's addition to the Mormon ranks proved one of the more pivotal conversions to the religion that the religion had seen at that point. And what religion? He was a preacher. He was a preacher. uh, It was Campbellite. Uh, he was a, oh, pre- a Campbellite preacher, which is, I, I think, a Baptist denomination. Okay, I think you explained that to me before, because I remember making fun of the name. <laughs> um, and as noted earlier, it's it's Rigdon's branch in Kirtland, Ohio, which will become not only the headquarters of the Mormon faith for the next few years, but it will also prove the hub for unambiguous entheogen use by the early saints. So the moment all the saints move to Kirtland, that's when shit gets wild. And so it is my speculation that Rigdon already had a group of visionary, like, occultists uh, that were kind of like fanatical Baptist Christians okay. who met up with this other occultist fanatical Christian group yeah. and yeah. just joined forces. Yeah. And as we'll see, there's a few particular figures in Rigdon's group that r- really have an influence on Joe and how the Mormons practice their sacrament ceremonies Hmm. okay interesting so as a quick side note uh like i keep having to we're we're moving through the timeline i'm just trying to keep things like relevant to what we're talking about yeah there's so much going on i have to skip um (laughs) so i have to keep making side notes i'm like oh by the way this is happening while all this is happening um and this is just to contextualize smith and his family again as so as a quick side note, during the time in October where the Lamanite missionaries were converting Rigdon, mm-hmm. um, it is worth mentioning that the Smith family, particularly Hiram and Joseph Sr., were dodging debtors and prison terms at times uh, to little or no success. In November of 1830, Samuel Smith, younger brother to Joseph, used proceeds from the Book of Mormon sales to free Smith Sr. Uh, from debtor's prison. Um, these continued spouts with the justice system was not due to religious persecution as i was taught as a child but rather another example of the smith family working people over and narrowly escaping any kind of real justice okay um and then reappropriating church funds to kind of get them out of trouble yeah okay so immediately the the smith the whole smith family was using the church to like keep them out of trouble and to pay off debts Oh. I'm skipping over a lot, and I'm sure critics of my work are going to say, like, well, you're skipping over all the miracles that happened. And I'm not including them because they're not worth mentioning. They're stupid miracles that, frankly, the exorcism is about as cool as any of the miracles get. That wasn't even that. Uh, I, mean, I think the next cool one is an old lady who has uh, arthritis. Uh, Joe Faith heals her, and she can lift her arm for about a day. That's... <laughs> That's about as cool as any of the miracles get. I'm skipping over a lot because it's BS. And it's basically just Smith conning a bunch of religiously uh, gullible people. Yeah. And his whole family is using church funds. It's not just Smith. That's why I think this whole family was in on this. Oh, absolutely. Because they're all using church funds to get out of trouble. I still, sorry, I still picture the family from Pete's Dragon. Um, (laughs) What did he get arrested for? Uh, Just being, he... 
ever since remember that we they had that like crystallized ginger or yeah. crystallized ginseng business yeah 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 um and they got into debt yeah ever since then that family kind of like uh would get into debt they would like buy things on credit get further into debt pay off a bunch of it move town oh buy okay. a bunch of cre- like and they just kept doing that okay and eventually their creditors just kept caught up yeah catching up to them yeah. and kept causing trouble and eventually when the church was formed they now had the funds to just like shut them up yeah um that didn't stop them from spending money they didn't have of course or continuing to use church funds to like solve that problem so i bring this up as a point of like if there's any question in your mind about whether or not Joe was a, at best, he was a pious fraud. At worst, he was an absolute monster of a human being and a con man extraordinaire. I tend to lean towards the latter. <laughs> if you tend towards the pious fraud uh, uh, spectrum, uh, end of the spectrum, remember things like this. Like his whole family was was using this as a uh, financial gain immediately, mm-hmm. which says to me, maybe not the most genuine people. So shortly after word of Rigdon's conversion in the fall uh, reaches Smith, Rigdon travels to New York in order to meet with Smith, uh, not lacking in ambition or narcissism. After the Book of Mormon, Joseph Jr. had recently undertaken the task of translating, or in other words, just rewriting the entire King James version of the Bible, uh, to better fit Mormon theology. And this is true. The The King James Version of the Bible was like several translations after any kind of original Bible. I don't want to divert into a giant discussion about the Bible and why it's inaccurate and how many translations there have been. Okay. But Joe really used that as a point of like, the Bible has been corrupted and the Book of Mormon is the only true word of God. It was directly handed to a prophet. I wrote it down. It is the most correct religious book on earth. The Bible has been corrupted over 2,000 years and translated and retranslated. And he was right. Yeah. But he was using that as a like. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I'm. This is. Yeah. Yes. So I'm right because of all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is. And so immediately after writing the Book of Mormon, he takes on the task of rewriting the King James Version of the Bible, which makes sense because that's his prophet voice. That's what he grew up reading. Mm-hmm. That's what he knew. <laughs> so he has no trouble rewriting the Bible, <laughs> especially to fit Mormon theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. he was obviously impressed with the. Joe was intelligent but maybe uneducated mm-hmm. rigdon was highly educated and considered a a, a biblical scholar and joe is clearly oh. impressed by him okay and so joe delivers a revelation on the spot naming rigdon his new scribe in this endeavor because you know cowdry kind of <laughs> pissed the bed and yeah. he's off at the lamanites and yeah. i don't like him anymore <laughs> so rigdon you're my new guy <laughs> And the the two quickly foster a working relationship, as mentioned perhaps too quickly, and begin a mission tour around the neighboring cities to preach and gather new converts. And by late December, Rigdon convinces Smith to relocate church headquarters to Rigdon's communal settlement in Kirtland, Ohio. He had kind of already set up this communal, like, Christian communism uh, settlement. And um, he was just like, I have everything. We have a bunch of houses. We have a bunch of stuff. You just basically go... Hook up all, like all the Mormons just move there and we have a, a, a church and everything. 
And at the quarterly conference of the church in early January of 1831, Smith gives the conveniently timed revelation where God tells Mormons to relocate to Ohio. Okay. So, again, it, when you put it all in chronological order, <laughs> it, it's striking. It's their business decisions. Yeah. So the saints in outlying branches were instructed to sell off their property and congregate in Kirtland with this and put all of their uh, their funds and all of their property in trust. They were like, it was literally Christian communism. And Joseph and Rigdon were at the top of that pyramid. So all the money that they made from selling their houses and their farms and stuff mm -hmm. all went to the church. And the church was supposed to divvy up land plots. And there was like a bishop storehouse with a bunch of like, you just come here and we have all the stuff. We have all the tools. You just take what tools you need. And everybody, to everybody at the time who hadn't heard of communism, at the, because it wasn't a thing at this point, this was like groundbreaking. And they were like, this is amazing. And we can be a society of God and we don't need money. And it sounded really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they just didn't is really this... notice that Smith and Rigdon were at the top of that pyramid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is this, did they, had they established tithings yet? Or is it just like, give us everything? Uh, at this point, it was give us everything. Okay. That's what Literally I thought. I everything just wanted you have. To... We will give you what you need and what we decide you need, I should mention. <laughs> and and you just take what you get and you you basically, everybody uh, grows crops and it was like a crop share program. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it, every cult does this. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So Rigdon uh, addressed the locals of Palmyra at the courthouse, um, quote, after denouncing dreadful vengeance on the whole state of New York and this village in particular, and recommending to all such as which to flee from the wrath to come, to follow him beyond the western waters, he took his leave. And this is from Abner Cole, my favorite guy. <laughs> he was uh, present when Rigdon, like, Rigdon's kind of a visionary. He's one of the few in the Mormon crowd that I really don't think needed to use entheogens. He like he seems to like go a little manic and just like starts this is and he's a real fiery like Baptist preacher. Okay. So imagine that. Uh, um okay. and Abner Cole watching in the crowd was just like, oh, wow. <laughs> At least you guys are leaving. Cool. You gonna storm off in your carriage? Cool. At least you guys are leaving. Um Rigdon's Rigdon spoke of brothers and sisters of the church sharing property and goodwill, a reflection of the communism, of the communalism his parishioners had been practicing f for some time at this point. It should be noted that just days after this uh, periodical's publication by Abner Cole, Joe once more gives a timely revelation to the saints, instructing them to hold their property in common and that the church would provide for all in a sort of Christian communism, as I mentioned. Mm, okay. Quote, uh, the re this is from uh, Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. The revelation added a seemingly simple injunction to, quote, administer the, to the poor and needy. As the plan was elaborated, however, caring for the poor entailed a radical new economic order. Members were to consecrate their properties for support of the poor by deeding all of their land and goods to the church's bishop with an irrevocable deed. In return, they were to receive back stewardships proportionate to their needs of their families, thus equalizing property, unquote. Conveniently, Joe and the church hierarchy would be in charge of this property and its distribution, clearly providing the Smiths with a steady income and access to financial relief from their debtors. And this eventually joe keeps doing this kind of thing where like all of the church property comes to me mm -hmm. and i divvy it out 
And he eventually starts divvying out church plots to his secret <laughs> plural brides yeah <laughs> and giving them property and houses and stuff to right them. and so part of the reason why we can figure out who he was married to is because like in the 1840s what 17 year old girl is just given a house and a property None. by smith <laughs> oh. and then you find records that they were <laughs> were sealed together so like <laughs> this is how we track down a lot of this information is okay. by Smith's behavior and how he sets things up for people. Okay. Most importantly himself and his favorites. <sighs> During that winter period while Smith and Rigdon were preaching Mormonism through the countryside and organizing a mass congregational migration to Ohio, the Kirtland Mormons were left to their own devices without much oversight from church officials. This lack of supervision led to the most publicly blatant use of entheogenic sacraments in the history of Mormonism. Woo, woo. Woo, woo. Here we are. This is the fun yes. stuff. I'm fist pumping. I know you can't see me right <laughs> it's now. It's slow motion. It's slow motion fist pumping. We're 15. We're like 16 hours into this podcast and we're finally getting to the good stuff. I think that says a lot uh, about me as a storyteller. <laughs> Uh, I really buried the lead on this one. I'm kind of regretting this now. Um, one man, Isaac Morley, seems to have been the ringleader of these happenings. Morley was a practicing polygamist who lived in a communal style set of small log buildings in Kirtland. And it was at his log home that the Kirtland saints held their first sacrament and prayer meetings. Sacrament meetings that subsequently resulted in visionary religious conversions to those who attended. Huh. With such visionary happenings going on in Kirtland, some of the more keen prospective members suspected that the Mormon preachers were drugging parishioners with laced wine or strong drink. So I'm not the first to mention this. Literally, the first year the churches started, we have Jasper, uh, Jasper Jesse Moss. Uh, he was a man who was one of Rigdon's former parishioners living and working in Kirtland as a school teacher when the first Mormon missionaries arrived there. Moss was a highly educated man for the time who had studied medicine and surgery, uh, but due to a physical deformity, uh, was uh, not able to practice medicine. Remember doctors at this time, like had to walk, they oh, walked yeah, to your yeah, house. Yeah. So he had a, I guess something with wrong bag. with his leg. Dr. And he... Foster. <laughs> Dr. Gloucester. Uh, what was that show you on? Dr. Thorne? Oh, yeah, just like him, Dr. Thorne, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he couldn't uh, walk around and be a doctor, so he just like stayed in town and was a school teacher. Um, Word. By all accounts, even his religious contemporaries, he was an honest and scholarly man. This was not an anti-Mormon. This was just like an honest, like upstanding member of the community that saw some missionaries come in and a bunch of changes happen real quickly. A bunch of changes. He's curious about it. New and exciting. He's mm -hmm. educated for that time period. Um, and yes, and as such, I think his opinion on the matter must be weighed quite heavily. This is actually like one of the uh, quotes that my work pivots on. Quote, this is Jesper Jassy Moss himself giving testimony. Quote, I commenced teaching school in Kirtland in the fall of 1830. The week that I commenced my school, three Mormon preachers came from York State. Two of these preachers I recollect, Parley Pratt and Oliver Cowdery. In the course of the winter, I attended their meeting. 
I believe I was the first person with a young man whose name I have forgotten, who was present when they took what was called the sacrament up at the Morley house. They were in the habit of turning everybody out of the door when they partook of the bread and wine, putting up blankets at the window, shutting off sight from without. They started a regular powwow. Uh, so powwow is like a really, is kind of a racist term that uh, uh, a lot of people used back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, a powwow was kind of, they're using it in uh, the like a German slang. Okay. Uh, a powwow was kind of like a religious, a fanatic religious Pentecostal thing um, that they called a powwow because they thought that's how like Native Americans uh, practice religion mm-hmm. was through like, oh, look at him dancing and whooping and hollering. Right. I'm using really lace- racist uh, language that they used at the time. Right. But that's like when they had Pentecostal moments of like speaking gibberish and rolling around on the floor. They were like, oh, that's what that's what the that's what the savages do. So this oh. is like a powwow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Thanks now that for... we just muddled through that minefield and I blew myself up. Um, <laughs> uh. They started a regular powwow, and when they got well going, meaning really ecstatic and rolling around and doing all their stuff, that they then opened the door and let us all come in again. So they, like, during the sacrament ceremony, they would push everybody out that wasn't, like, a serious prospective member. Oh, okay. Okay. And they would only administer the sacrament to those who were, like, in the in crowd. Okay. And they would shut off all the light. Remember our our variables. Yeah, yeah. Um, they would seclude everybody. They would sing hymns. They would do their stuff. They would mm-hmm. get everybody all hyped up and going. Mm-hmm. And then they would pull off the windows. Everybody could come in again. And then they would keep the meeting going. But now everybody could watch them like roll. And this helped get converts because then like people would come in and be like, these people are going nuts. Like they're full of the spirit of God. Look Wait, at them. That made people want to do it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because people would see like such ecstatic religious experience they're like i want i want to i want to know what that's like and so they keep coming back and this was a way of kind of like selling the religion and so interesting it's okay i did not realize that i thought they were kind of just like lacing them all and they'd be like whoa i was taken by the spirit it was it was the in crowd at first and then it slowly opens up and we'll get there but like this guy's this guy's quote was like the first week I was started teaching school. These guys came in and they started setting up these sacraments and I saw what was going on. And so me and this guy, I can't remember his name, but like it was a guy I knew. We decided to go to one of these meetings together. Um, so a young man and myself made it up that we would stay inside unless they took us out by force. They were just like, no. Nope. Okay, so they were peaceful. Gonna, they really wanted to scope it to out. Sit in. Like, yeah. Uh, the young they, man. They clearly knew something was up. Something mm-hmm. was fishy. Yep. And so after the sacrament, quote, the young man got asleep, and I had the dumb evil and could not talk, but they did not carry us out, but went on with the sacrament. Continuing on, so when he says the dumb evil, he's meaning like he's silent he, protesting. No, he just can't. Whatever the sacrament did to him. Oh, he already took it. They took the sacrament immediately. His friend falls asleep, which says that it's laced to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he has what he calls the dumb evil, and he cannot speak, right. which is a symptom of mm-hmm. psychedelics, especially when you don't know what you're taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the poor, and this is what he says about that meeting where he took this with his friend 
quote, the poor house in Portage County, Ohio, where there were half a dozen insane and idiotic persons, was the best comparison of anything to that scene that night. And if I had my cloak on, I would have stolen the wine and carried it home to see whether it was drugged or not, unquote. So this guy who's trained as a doctor takes the sacrament, is like, and immediately knows what's going on and is like, holy shit, this, and he sees the effects that it has on everybody and he compares it to an insane asylum. Right. (laughs) And he immediately is like, oh, that was the sacrament wine. Okay, cool. Um, If I wish I could have stolen some of that to prove whether or not it was drugged. He is not the only person to make this accusation through this history. So uh, if you're thinking for a moment, this is like my, this is my hinge pin. Yeah. uh, It's not. There's like a few other people that make this accusation. He's just a very qualified person that does. And he does it within a year of them starting the religion. So (laughs) I might be stretching things a bit, but it seems to me to not to be a stretch to say that, you know. That given is- what we've seen so far, yeah, and given that we just have a, a brand spanking new doctor who they don't know is a doctor because in town he's known as an as a school teacher, right? No one would know that he would have the education to spot what they were doing. So letting him sit in is not a big deal. It's like whatever they're, I guess they're serious, mm-hmm. so they let him stay, mm-hmm. and he immediately points this out. I just I can't. I've argued with people about this a few times, and Jesper Jassy Moss is like, argue with him. Can you? He's a trained doctor. He's sympathetic to the Mormon, the like occultist Christians. Like, he's not an anti Mormon. So, um, if you happen to listen to the psychedelics episode, uh, you know that these sacramental sessions appear to appreciate the entheogenic var- uh, variables described by scientists over a century after these events. Mimicking the protocols used by the John Hopkins in the early 2000s, Isaac Morley and his big family intentionally controlled the variables so carefully that, quote, even the door was muffled with cloth to prevent a noise, unquote. Wait, so they padded the doors yeah, because so they didn't just like so sh- loud? They didn't just quite like shut out the light. They literally muffled the doors so that the people inside wouldn't be bothered and that they could like really control the variables. They took oh. this very seriously. Oh. And again, they mirrored the same protocols that John Hopkins in the 2000s used Mm -hmm. for entheogenic, like seeing specifically a spiritual experience under psychedelics. Yeah. It's it's pretty amazing to me. And I don't know why people just don't see this. What time of year was this? Um, This was in early January. uh, Like, yeah, I think this was in early January. Okay. I was just wondering. Oh, this was in the fall. No, in okay. the fall of 1830. Cool. This was still that's what in I was wondering. No, that's so during that's the season. Up where that's all already, yeah. yeah. Anyway, a trained and competent student of medicine. Again, J.J. Moss correctly identified the visionary agent responsible for the visionary sacraments on the Morley farm. Uh, it appears that though these meetings were open to the public, uh, that in most cases the entheogenic sacrament was distributed only to those in the congregation who were accepted as Mormons or like really serious about it, like I mentioned. Um, not all of the saints necessarily approved of this entheogenic sacrament. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not understanding what the saints are. Are they, there's just the saints? They're, uh, they're just special people. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's so, fine. So the the Mormons immediately start calling themselves the Latter Day Saints, right? Because they're the 
in the end of days, and they're the saints that are going to be lifted up by God when he comes. Oh, they're... So when I say... whenever, oh, So it's just all of them. I've been doing this for like 16 hours. I've been saying the saints this whole podcast. I know, I know. That's what I mean, though. I'm sorry I haven't said this until it's fine. this point. The saints are Mormons. It's just well, all of them. They're, they, call, they call themselves the saints. Yes. Oh, I, I say cool. it facetiously in the same way that I say prophet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a way of like designating the Mormons, because that's what they call themselves, is the saints. Because... <laughs> You gotta be just as narcissistic as Joe. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm editorializing and being mean. Anyway, not all of this is the saints approved of these entheogenic sacraments. Um, or, you know, at least that they were happening in front of unprepared or more skeptical members. It wasn't so much that it was happening. It was like, don't do this in front of people that don't know what to expect. Um, and it was actually John Whitmer, one of the three witnesses that recorded, quote, The disciples had increased in number to about 300 at this point. By the enemy of all righteousness had got hold of some of those who had professed to be his followers because they had not sufficient knowledge to detect him in all his devices, meaning Satan. They didn't know enough to see Satan for what he was. He took notion to bind the minds of some of the weaker ones and to make them think that an angel of God appeared to them and showed them writings on the outside of a cover of a Bible and on parchment which flew through the air and on the backs of their hands and many such foolish and vain things. Others lost their strength and slid on the floor and other such like maneuvers. Which So he's pissed off they can't handle their shit? It's, it's essentially he's not upset that they're having visions. He's right. upset that they're rolling around being ecstatic. He's okay. just like... Proper Christians don't do this. And it was just like, keep your shit together, guys. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was, and well, again, contextualized, It it's less like that they're doing it. It's just that they're doing it in front of skeptical people. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, get. It's probably also why they call themselves the saints, because they have all these special feelings. So they probably also feel real special. <laughs> Every, they call themselves a peculiar people, and peculiar means special. Yeah, the, they, everything about Mormons. The peculiar makes people them is a cool name, but that sucks. I, I don't. I don't think they have. No. Anyway, all this all this was happening <laughs> like, so. Publicly. I'm taking that one back. I'm sorry. <laughs> the peculiar. Yeah. It is. It is fun. That's, Out of all of the cool. things Mormons called themselves, I peculiar was one of the things I was like, yeah. Oh, I like that. That one's cool. They don't get it anymore. Sorry. I am peculiar. The peculiar people are the ones that leave. I like to think so. Yeah. I think it's the normies that stay. <laughs> um, sorry. I'm doing it again. I drank too much before recording. You today. always drink too much, Pippin. I smoked too much, too. Um, anyway, uh, the, all of this was happening so publicly that even the local newspapers made note of the Mormon ceremonies with articles that included reports. Like, God, I just can't stand out of the news, yeah. can you, buddy? Quote, some lie in trances a day... Oh, should I do this in my old-timey voice? Yeah. yeah. Some lie in trances a day or two and visit the unknown regions in the meantime. Some are taken with a fit of terrible shaking, which they say is the power of the Holy Ghost. I've got the terrible shakings. <laughs> yeah. So, and again, this mimics... Remember, there's that con- that uh, conference last episode where they had cots and beds laid out for people that, like... Yeah, no, they were ready trances. to go. So they again, we don't have hard evidence that it was happening before this time but by simple virtue of earlier conferences had beds and cots prepared for people who were going to visit unknown regions for a day or two 
Well, and now it's too big. They had already been doing this, and this just like started to happen more. It's just too big to hide now. And there's no authority around to stop it. Oh, Joe's not here? No, Joe and Rigdon are off doing their preaching Oh, they're going in private. So during this time, remember, he originally was like, everyone can revelate and stuff. And the only people he dressed down was Hiram for doing it. So he was like, don't you see your stones? And everyone was like, all right, well, we got drugs. Yep. So... (laughs) We can still see. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> While he's gone, they just go buck wild. Um, and uh, to <laughs> to my knowledge, there are few, if any, methods of inducing trances which last a day or two outside of psychoactive drugs. <laughs> um, the fact that the newspaper men of the 19th century were taking note of such speaks greatly to both the prevalence and profound power of the sacramental, sacramental ceremonies at the Morley Farm. Lest uh, the listener be tempted to think that this is an early strain of yellow journalism, the prophet's own brother, William, supported these newspaper accounts when he said, quote, I have seen young men and women seemingly unconscious, and the folks said they had lain so for two days, and they were lain on beds, and nobody tried to prevent us looking at them, but we were not allowed to go into the room. So, like, during this, they had people... Like even even William, out. his brother, says this, and he's like, "This is weird. They were, they were gone, man." Jeez, it's um, just like a frat house. Yeah. So, w- with a newly formed temperance society in Kirtland, ironically, like right right as they showed up, Kirtland had just founded a temperance society, uh, which, if you don't know, is like uh, at, at what started prohibition, uh-huh. where the were temperance societies. They were like okay. temperance went like anti. Uh, getting fucked up it wasn't just alcohol it was like being fucked up causes so many problems in our society specifically a lot of the temperance societies were built by women who were like we're tired of getting our husbands getting drunk and beating us yeah so like we need to stop like giving them alcohol and letting them have access to it yeah um so just before all of this happened a temperance society had started in kirtland (laughs) um it was a it was a society as in like a group of people, not yes. a law that they had. A, it wasn't like dirty dancing. Mm-hmm. Okay, they still could listen to music and dance. <laughs> I'm sorry, know. I care I, more I, about that I don't than know if all it the was other full things. Footloose or not? Footloose, dirty dancing. It, it Damn was, it! I always mix it up. <laughs> I don't know if it was full footloose or not. Okay, so there's but no strippers. There were there was a God temperance society that wanted uh, Kirtland to stop selling booze okay. and to stop behavior like this. So. This type of ecstatic behavior being published in the news and whatnot could not continue without repercussions that could cripple or kill Smith's new religion. Um, Quote, with the swell of members uh, came a crescendo of religious fervor, resulting in unusual spiritual manifestations, which impaired the image of of the young church among sober people, and had they continued, might have brought about its downfall. Unquote. That's by historian Lamar Peterson. Hmm. Uh, Parley... Pratt, the man allegedly responsible for converting the Kirtland members, uh, also took notice of these curiously ecstatic sacrament meetings. Quote, and this is Parley Pratt, As I went forth among the different branches, some very strange spiritual operations were manifested, which were disgusting rather than edifying. Some persons would seem to swoon away and make unseemly gestures and be drawn or disfigured in their countenances. Others would fall into ecstasies and be drawn into contortions, cramps, fits, etc. Others would seem to have visions and revelations which were not edifying and which were not congenial to the doctrine and spirit of the gospel. 
In short, a false and lying spirit seemed to be creeping into the church, feeling our weaknesses and our inexperience, and lest we should err in the judgment concerning these spiritual phenomena, myself, John Murdoch, and several other elders went to Joseph Smith and asked him to inquire of the Lord concerning these spiritual manifestations. Okay, that makes sense to me, because I'm like, if these people are contorting and flipping out, like, how are you not thinking they're all just, like, possessed by yeah. the devil? Well, and it, this again, this doesn't exclude the idea that he knew what was going on. It was just like, these people are getting out of control, Smith, yeah. and there's a temperance society here. We just moved here. We need to chill it, chill it out. out. Can you give us a revelation? Yeah. <laughs> and it even sounds like he admits to, like, all the elders were like, Joe... We need a revelation yeah. about this. Yeah. <laughs> so upon hearing of these manifestations, and more importantly, how it was affecting the reputation of his young religion, Smith made his way to the new Mormon headquarters to deal with matters himself. Uh, Joseph Smith himself detailed his return to Kirtland. Quote, God damn it, you guys can't handle your shit. <laughs> Soon after the gospel was established in Kirtland and during the absence of the authorities of the church many false spirits were introduced many strange visions were seen and wild enthusiastic notions were entertained men ran out of doors under the influence of the spirit and some of them got up on the stumps of trees and shouted and all kinds of extravagances were entered into by them one man pursued a ball that he said was flying in the air until he came to a precipice where he jumped into the top of a tree which saved his life <laughs> and many ridiculous things were entered into, calculated to bring disgrace upon the church, to cause the spirit of God to be withdrawn, and to uproot and destroy those glorious principles which had been developed by, for the salvation of the human family. But when the authorities returned, the spirit was made manifest, those members that were exercised with it were tried for their fellowship, and those that would not repent and forsake it were cut off. Ooh. Unquote. So... <laughs> Joe admits that like he, he's like, yes, I know you've heard weird things happen, and people are running a in the muck. streets. A muck, <laughs> drugged out of their goddamn gourds. <laughs> Someone even doing that ball thing. But this had instance. nothing to do with me or the church hierarchy, and the moment we showed up, we put a stop to it. And if people didn't want to stop, we let them keep going, but they're not Mormons anymore. <laughs> like... like his, his PR pivots are great. Um, so the visionary Smith was not condemning visionary or ecstatic states, but rather behavior that could bring disgrace upon the church of God. Shortly after joining the Kirtland saints in the late spring of 1831, Joseph Smith redefined what kind of spiritual manifestations were appropriate expressions of piety and devotion within the revelation now known as DNC 50. However, Mirroring Smith's personal attitudes, this revelation did nothing to damn the ecstatic behavior of the saints, nor the entheogenic sessions under which they were occurring, nor did they condemn the use of recreational intoxicants. The revelation simply cracked down on behavior that was too extreme for anyone outside of the faith to witness. <laughs> In fact, the noted public intemperance of Joseph Smith himself would be regularly reported by his close confidants up until the night before he died. As one former Kirtland resident later remembered, quote, The saints used to love to have feasts in which wine was passed around in buckets, each one himself helping him to all he wanted with a gourd or a dipper. 
the old blesser, old Joe Smith, often got so blessed drunk that he could not get out of his chair, unquote. I love that he called him the old blesser. The old blesser. Blessed all the sacrament wine and then got so fucked up on it. It reminds me of that scene in uh, Men in Tights. <laughs> He's like, there's birds, there's trees. Let's bless the whole forest until we get to So it's, that's, that's Joe in a bottle. <laughs> So by late uh, spring of 1831, a majority of the Mormon congregation were making their way to Kirtland, or had already got there. And it was in June of that year that Smith and Rigdon repaid the efforts of the saints with a profoundly visionary experience on on a massive scale. According to biographer Richard Bushman, this day was even prophesied by Smith so that the freshly arrived Mormons were anticipating the event. Quote, I will pour out my spirit upon them in the day that they assemble themselves together. The words seem to be a promise of a day of Pentecost, when some gift of heaven, a spiritual endowment, would descend upon the saints, unquote. So, uh, Joseph Smith's uh, very sympathetic biographer himself mm-hmm. even admits, like, Joseph promised them a day of Pentecost, where things were going to get buck wild. Okay. And uh, people who were used to Pentecostal uh, revivals, Mm -hmm. especially Smith, he had to really deliver on that. So promising people that were used to Pentecostals, a true day of Pentecostalism. Is this like a Belton? No. uh, Okay. So in the New Testament, there's a section where people start rolling around and speaking in tongues and doing all sorts of crazy things. And they call it a, a, a Pentecostal. It's like a special and day that everyone gets to. No, like... it's just, a, it's a, it's like an act of religious ecstasy within Christianity. Oh, okay. So, it's, so like the okay. idea it's of a going. a state that you get to yes, get to. Okay. Altering yourself such that you roll around on the ground and you oh, speak well, yeah, in tongues. Okay, so that's why that. everyone gets excited because they get to get that. Yes. From and, and this you get, church. You get high on God, essentially. Right, right. And for people used to that, Promising a true day of Pentecostalism was a big promise. Yeah. So he had to deliver on that. But um, I thought he kind of did that. No, he. I think clearly he'd been doing that. But yeah. for people that were had moved all the way to Kirtland and hadn't really had a Kirtland session, oh. <laughs> these were people that just joined Mormonism. Okay. This wasn't people who had been in Kirtland. So he was pro- like all the people that were arriving and hadn't got these cool sacrament sessions. Okay. So these people are... Oh, on their he way was, to, he okay. was like, hey, we're going to have a big conference day and all of you are going to get to see God. We're going to have a true day of Pentecostalism oh for all of you. <laughs> and um, so although the, the saints had been promised a visionary conference, it appears that not all were fully anticipating just how visionary it would prove to be. Like Bushman, the biographer I just cited, not all in the congregation that June were considering the possibility of laced sacramental wine. Nonetheless, after the sacrament had been prepared and administered by the hands of Smith himself, the meeting took on a fantastic and almost science fiction tone. <laughs> John Whitmer, remember one of the three, one of the eight witnesses, uh, recorded, quote, The spirit of the Lord fell upon Joseph in an unusual manner, and he prophesied that John the Revelator was then among the ten tribes of Israel, who had been led away by the Salamansar king of Israel, to prepare them for their return, and for the long dispensation to again possess the land of their fathers. He prophesied many more things that I have not written, Although convoluted, um, this revelation is the first appearance of Joe's special version of the Hollow Earth Theory, 
Um, we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah. Uh, not in the science fiction episode. Oh. Um, we haven't gotten to that yet. Oh, yeah. But essentially, uh, the <laughs> Joe Specialer's version of the Hollow Earth Theory, uh, which was popularized just a decade prior, um, and which would eventually go on to inspire Jules Verne and his journey to the center of the Earth a generation later, which was like the birth of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, Smith had, was already talking about this and like making his own narrative um, sometime before all of this. So again, I this is just like Christian fan fiction. Um, Smith clarified this tidbit of Mormon cosmology in uh, to his secretary sometime later when he said, you remember the old cauldron or potash kettle you used to boil maple sap in for sugar, don't you? Uh, they are in the North Pole in a concave, just the shape of that kettle, and John the Revelator is with them, preparing them for their return. <laughs> yeah, so like uh, John the Revelator, the guy who wrote Revelations... Mm-hmm. apparently took a bunch of Jews into the hollow earth mm-hmm. and he's waiting there for Jesus to come again. They traveled there. They walked all the way yeah, over uh, there. Yep. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in, in other accounts, Joseph even quote, described the shape of the earth at the poles as being a round elongation and even drew a diagram of it. Oliver B. Huntington, another prominent early Mormon reaffirmed this belief when he said, quote, I have heard Joseph say that John was among the 10 tribes beyond the North pole. So clearly this conference and the sacramental wine was stimulating Joe's already exceptional imagination. So at this conference, that's when he started talking about all this stuff. Yes, this is the first time he starts talking about the hollow earth and John the Revelator and all that stuff. Okay. Um, We didn't get to it, but (laughs) what inspires Battlestar Galactica eventually Mm -hmm. is the idea that um, that that hole in the earth Mm -hmm. was created by God. And a bunch of Jews were essentially trapped on the section of the earth that God cut out of the middle God of the earth. Scooped it up. He scooped it out, and there was a couple. And of he Jews sent it off into it. space. Okay. And that's where the lost tribes of Israel are, are floating off into space. Are they? And that idea that there are lost tribes in space trying to find their earth home, uh-huh. and they have an ancient reformed Egyptian and all of. <laughs> It was written by a Mormon. <laughs> so what inspired Battlestar Galactica comes out of in this, this conference. Of this big old, uh, what do they call it? Those big festivals where all the people go and they oons, oons and dance. And... I don't know. Burning Man's or, or, the, or the raves. The raves. Whatever the kids call it these days. <laughs> I, I don't. You do know. <laughs> The hookies, what are they? The hookies, the jabber hookies. The jabber hookies. What are we even talking about at this point? I don't know these things. I'm a loser. (laughs) I've never felt more like a dad than this moment right now. You do know what I'm talking about. You've been to them. No, no, I've never been to a. I've been to one rave. It was pretty lame. I told you. See? You're a raver. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So, following uh, Joseph's post-sacrament, we're like already an hour into this. I got to wrap up. Sorry. Um, Following Joseph's post-sacramental prophecies, he ordained elders with the Melchizedek priesthood, a biblical strain of priestly authority that had been allegedly lost for well over a thousand years. However, it appears that the sacramental wine was having its way with the men involved, and the endowment ceremony quickly got out of hand for Smith. Uh, During the conference, a small group of teachers, priests, and elders, quote, 
This conference lasted a few days, I should mention. Oh, I don't doubt that. So they had several sessions. clearly. This session included a private group of teachers, priests, and elders. And Joseph was, uh, like, giving them special priesthood powers. And uh, this is from uh, Richard Bushman, Joseph's uh, sympathetic Mormon biographer. So (laughs) this is, again, not an anti-Mormon source. (laughs) Quote, the elders met in a log schoolhouse near Isaac Morley's farm, that that Isaac Morley, hoping for a spiritual endowment. Uh, Levi Hancock, who had earlier been startled by visionaries, was baffled by what happened that day. Joseph promised Lyman White that he would see Christ that day. Again, he's he's calling his shots now. Yeah. You. Hey, you. You're going to I'm going to show gonna, you how to see Christ. You're going to see Jesus. White soon, and this is again after the sacrament. Drink, drink, drink. White, <laughs> Sorry. white soon turned stiff and white, ex- white turned white, exclaiming that he had indeed viewed the Savior. According to Hancock, Joseph himself said, I now see God, and Jesus Christ is at his right hand. Then the meeting unraveled. Joseph ordained Harvey Whitlock to the high priesthood, the most important business of the meeting, and Whitlock reacted badly. He turned as black as Lyman was white. Hancock reported his fingers were set like claws. He went around the room and showed his hands and tried to speak. His eyes were the shape of O's. Astonished at the turn of events, Hiram, Joseph's brother, exclaimed, Joseph, this is not of God. Joseph, unwilling to cut the phenomenon short, told Hiram to wait. (laughs) But Hiram insisted, I will not believe unless you inquire of God and he owns it. So (laughs) Hiram is like, this is getting nuts, dude. You need to calm these guys down or like give me a revelation or whatever you're going to do. But like, yeah, control this situation. (laughs) And I love that Joe's just sitting there like smiling, like, no, let it go. No, no, it's fine. (laughs) No, 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 they're fine. Um, (sighs) Hancock said, Joseph bowed his head and in a short time got up and commanded Satan to leave Harvey, laying his hands upon his head at the same time. Then Hancock said, Layman Copley, who weighed over 200 pounds, somersaulted in the air and fell on his back over a bench. <laughs> White cast Satan out of Copley, and Copley was calmed. So Wait. everybody's exercising everybody. Dude's doing backflips. Guy's got- The, the like, guy that was getting exercised did a backflip, or that's just happening in the background? It's happening in the background. Okay, cool. cool <laughs> Guys are cool. going around with their hands oh and claws, <laughs> with their eyes dilated. And like He's turning- blue it sounds yep this Um, and and this is how he ends the quote this was not the spiritual endowment the elders had expected (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and again this mormon biographer this this mormon biographer just glazes over the idea that this could have had anything to do with the sacramental wine (laughs) Anyway, Smith promised a theophanic experience and delivered it in a group of men once more shortly following a sacramental ceremony. Hmm. What was likely the first profoundly visionary experience for the individuals involved, some serious integration time was necessary for the experience to fit into their 19th century reality. As one attendee, John Corll, said of the post-conference attitudes, quote, however, some some doubting took place among the elders, and uh, considerable conversations was held on the subject. The elders, not fairly understanding the nature of the endowments, it took some time to reconcile their feelings, unquote. <laughs> so a lot of these guys afterwards were just like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and they all just 
had to talk about it for a while before they were like, okay, are we, was that a God? Are we, was that God, Joseph or God? Okay, I guess that was God. That was, okay, that was God, I guess. That was God. Yeah. yeah. That was God. Go ahead. Okay, so we're Mormons now? We're Mormons now. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh, my God. When skeptics later wondered about where Joseph received the authority to confer uh, a dead priesthood back to the earth and manifest such ecstatic powers in his parishioners, Joe simply retconned a scenario in which Oliver Cowdery and himself were conferred uh, this special priesthood by none other than the resurrected apostles Peter, James, and John. Uh, I mentioned this in a few a few episodes back where like they they said this and the Whitmers eventually are like, hey, we don't remember that happening. Okay. Uh, this is where he, people start questioning, and at this point is when he starts retconning, and this is oh. where the seed of doubt starts hitting the Whitmers, where they're like, wait uh, a minute, some okay. weird shit's going on. I thought they started to doubt some stuff, though, right after his trial, and he stopped using a seer stone. They did, yes. They, they uh, Last episode when Hiram Page and that whole thing, yeah. uh, that's when they- That bugged him. That bugged him. Now this, this bugged is bugging him. Again. him. And okay. it's just a few, it, it starts nitpicking, especially at the Whitmers, and eventually yeah. most of the Whitmers just abandon him, okay. and Cowdery and everything too. Yeah. Um, th- so this, this like- retcon apparently happened at the whitmer farm like i said but an event that the two men didn't see a reason to reveal until criticized and given that joe and cowdery never missed an opportunity to gloat about their angelic communications or spiritual manifestations it seems likely that this again was just another of joe's retcons so (laughs) all of all of that's happening this is just over like a couple months. This is from October to January is about where we're at. Um, it's got wild. Honestly, immediately within a year doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's a lot for within a year. A lot. Um, kind of perfect timing. I feel for them to move someplace where what is that society called? The Temperance Society. So like all these dudes are seeing like, okay, great. Now they're all teaming up together and we're not allowed to drink anymore and this is going to suck. And then all of a sudden, boom, this church shows up with like, it's this is church. This is <laughs> this is deep stuff. Like this is important. We should do this. So it's, I can see, uh, I can see if there was already a problem there and then they're having people with possibly a lot of people with a problem. Mm-hmm. Giving them access to stuff and an excuse. Yes, you can see why you can see why Joe started out in New York, mm-hmm. where everyone knew who and what he was, mm-hmm. and immediately made him the pariah of the community. Mm-hmm. And so he had to move, mm-hmm. and he almost like immediately <laughs> shits where he eats and makes him and his new church a pariah of the Kirtland community yeah. that aren't Mormon. Right, and again, yeah, very quickly he moves to Missouri makes himself the pariah of that community and has to move to Illinois, makes himself the pariah of that community and is eventually killed for it. <laughs> like all I see is a con man who kept getting outed. Yeah. And he kept moving locations, changing his game a little bit and getting bigger and bigger ego and finally fell. Like It's just so interesting how like, could you imagine Joe being a Mormon today? <laughs> I don't think he physically could do it. Oh no, no! The uh, the I think first off that, he was definitely a drunk. Well, he he liked his booze, <laughs> right? Among liked, other, and he liked his uh, his underage women and yeah. or girls. I'm just gonna, he liked oh, his young yeah. girls, yes, and uh, a lot of other things that are supposed to be against the Mormon. 
Right. But in reality, are actually quite Mormon. <laughs> or what founded it. <laughs> what yeah. founded it. And uh, yeah, anyway, it's just it's a lot of whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well. But yes, this is where this is where so much of this starts is just in this few months, this first year just kicks off everything that spirals out of control. Um, and this is where we'll leave it for today. We're already an hour in. I only covered a few months. I think this is just going to be, this is going to get ridiculous real quick. It yeah. gets, it gets worse. This isn't the, this isn't the crescendo. I'm just assuming people die. Oh, oh, a lot of people die. I just can't imagine that a people don't die. A lot die. of innocent women and children die. I have no doubt. A lot of uh, innocent indigenous people die. Yeah, how could a they not? A lot of uh, black people die. A lot, like, a lot of people that shouldn't have died end up dying. Oh, I, yeah, I, uh consequently not to mention just a you know a wagon train of 120 men women and children who literally had nothing to do with the mormons and were just indiscriminately murdered by people dressed as paiute indians to to make it look like it wasn't the mormons killing them and to make the paiute look like they killed them anyway um yeah the, a lot of a lot of people you died. can't drop bombs like that i'm sorry well that's that's after Joe's years, but yeah, uh, that's called the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which was perpetrated by Brigham Young, the guy that we named a college after, ordered the execution of some 120 men, women, and children. And then when he was found out, um, off put the blame onto his uh, like surrogate son, John D. Lee, who he had executed for his crimes, and then promised him absolution in the afterlife. <laughs> so he like excommunicated him publicly. And uh -huh. privately was like, hey, when you get killed for my problem, um, I'm going to make um, – you're going to have like a mansion in heaven. It's going to be so sweet in heaven. Gosh. But you're going to – I'm going to – and he actually like the moment he was ex he was killed and excommunicated, he secretly had him rebaptized, <laughs> Like all his ceremonies redone so that in the afterlife he could have his just rewards for um, doing God's work of killing 120 – it's interesting that he Men, actually followed through on the whole ritual of it, though. Well, he, I'm a little surprised at that. <laughs> um, we know about this because John D. Lee, the guy who did this and was killed for it, uh, like wrote an expose about it before he died. <laughs> so we, we kind of know what happened uh, uh, retrospectively anyway. Huh. Okay. So I'm sorry to drop that bomb on you. Yeah, um, thanks. I'm sure eventually we'll cover the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, but yeah. Why did they give it such a lovely name and then <laughs> mountain meadows mountain meadows massacre massacre it does it's a very like it sounds like a um it sounds like a metal album yeah yeah tickling daisies death clock death. it sounds like a death clock album <laughs> mountain meadows massacre <laughs> right. we need to leave i'm hungry okay i'm hungry too let's go bye bye everyone Make me food. <laughs>